This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre occasionally. Uh, we'll give some love to an actor of various industry, uh, you know, uh, you know, someone we love. Movers and shakers. <laughs> Movers and shakers. Uh, yeah, so my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I am a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. And today on Lens Me Your Ears, we are talking summer movies. Now, what's a summer movie? We'll get into that. Uh, and we are talking about the Bob's Burgers movies, which is out in cinemas, and a, a film called Fire Island. And that's all coming up in the next hour here on Lens Me Your Ears. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears for the first installment of our show about summer movies. Uh, movies that take place in the summer or have a summer theme or or maybe they just come out in the summer and they remind us of that warm, sunshiny glow of uh, most people's favorite season of the year. Not everybody's, but but certainly a, a different feeling than, than winter. And of course, we could probably do a whole thing on, on winter movies, not necessarily yeah. Christmas movies, but things that take place in the cold, uh, snowy depths of February. Oh my gosh, I got a whole you. bunch of lists of those too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Simple Plan, the, the uh, Sam Raimi movie yeah, just, I just popped the, in my head. The Ice Storm. Um, oh. But uh, but you know what? You, I was yeah. going to suggest we need to define our summer movie category, but yeah. you just did it, Stephen. You I, just I went ahead did. and did it. Yeah. Well, because yeah. these films aren't necessarily, like, I mean, what, what if someone says summer movie, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Well, I would say that the, the teen comedies that I grew up with, the broad, some of them are sort of broad sex comedies, really. If you think about like One Crazy Summer or Porky's or even Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, from the 1980s, those are the kind of summer movies I think of. But he's still in school. Well, that's the thing, but it's it's very warm. Like people are in the pool. You okay, know, like he's in school, but there's a parade happening, so it's clearly a holiday. So what is going on? <laughs> that is a little weird. Is it? Is it? Well, I've what? hated that movie ever since. <laughs> well, we don't actually talk a lot about some of the movies we chose today for our summer movie <laughs> podcast. Maybe Volume One, because there were many on our list, many, many more oh, than yes. we could get to uh, in the last couple of weeks. But uh, we, you know. We, we might do another one. I mean, summer is, is is a short season here, but I feel like it needs to be celebrated by staying in and watching movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, so we plucked a number of movies could be considered summer movies in our, our central theme. And in fact, one of them I, I suggest might not even really qualify, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> yes, I um, think I know which one you're talking um, about. But, uh, but yeah, I do like the idea that we've jumped all over the place and it's a very loose sort of, sometimes we're much more specific with our category choices and uh, much more direct. This feels like a broader one. And, and, uh, and it was nicely negotiated between you and I in terms of the kinds of which ones we might want to talk about. I, I mean, Technically, if we go with, for instance, movies that came out in the summer, uh, you know, another movie that just was released maybe a month ago and I think probably qualifies as Top Gun Maverick. Um, the first one was a summer blockbuster, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, those ones would qualify. I mean, 
you know, I guess technically Top Gun Maverick came out in May, which is still spring, but feels like summer. It feels like a summer, the start of the summer blockbuster It's definitely going to be playing for, for weeks to come, that's yes, for sure. Yes, yes. So that would qualify this new Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movie, which I have yet to see, but that's, uh, that's a summer movie. But, you know, I think... For me, what's important is that it, the film really feels like it's set in summer, that the characters connect with the warmer weather and the lazier, you know, lifestyle and things that you might do in the summertime. Uh, and that's part of what makes the genre, I think, special for me. Yeah. Like, I mean, for me, if I if I thought summer movies, my brain just immediately goes to Frankie and Annette Beach Party movies. Ah, and, right. And a which, whole other generation. Which we didn't watch any of for this <laughs> podcast. I'll tell you right up front. Uh, I have the whole set of them. I've got from, from, uh, from Bikini Beach to Pajama Party to... Uh, the Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. I've got the whole set of them. Uh, Muscle Beach Party. Uh, no, Beach Blanket Bingo is probably the best of the bunch if you want to pick what, just one. And wow. Maybe if we do another summer movie installment, we'll watch I appreciate that, one, that but... you didn't suggest any of those to watch, Stephen, <laughs> <laughs> for this one. But, you know, maybe if... The classic drive-in fare. If, if there's one there that you really like, I'll go with it. I'll go I'd, with I'd it. I'd say Beach Blanket Bingo. And I think uh, uh, the, the weird thing about them is that Buster Keaton is in a bunch of them doing kind of... Pratt Falls. Really? Com- yeah. Yeah. He's, oh, he's in through at least he's in how to stuff a wild bikini. Uh, I know that much, but wow. I think he's in more than one of them. And uh, there's, there's lots of great things. And then they always have great guest stars like Don Rickles or Frank Gorsh, you know, like these great character actors, you know, Frank Gorshin or whatever that show up. And Mickey Rooney, I think, turns up in one of them. And it's, they're, they're very odd. Like it's just, it's hard to imagine the brain set that put them together because they're kind of formulaic, but each one has its own unique properties that uh, that make it kind of stand out. And then, of course, you've got Annette always in a one piece, never in a bikini. Uh-huh. Um, you know, not to offend Walt Disney, right? Because right. uh. she was out on loan from from Di- anyway. There's a whole that's a whole subgenre. We'll hopefully get into some point down the road. But not right. Oh, I our listeners are just <laughs> chomping at the bit here, Stephen. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> Let's talk about the Bob's Burgers movie. It's in cinemas still, I believe. Directed by Lauren Bouchard and Bernard Derriman, written by Bouchard and Nora Smith. Now, right off, I should admit, I've never watched the show. So I recognize I probably have a disadvantage compared to people who know and love these characters. Uh, so this is more or less my first impression of the Belcher family. And that impression wasn't awesome. I know people really <laughs> dig this show. You're a fan, Stephen. I am so, a fan, yes. So I'll be interested in hearing what you thought of the film as someone who came to it with foreknowledge of the characters and the way they their vibe. I thought there was cleverness in the writing and the performances, but I found the movie really strangely depressing. Um, now, when I... I posted my review on my blog, A Flaw in the Iris. Um, a regular reader responded on social media to say that I that he thought I had got I hadn't gotten it right this time, and that that uh, that if I hadn't captured the spirit of the show, it's because I hadn't actually watched it. And though he did admit that um, I shouldn't necessarily have to go back to watch the show in order to pre- appreciate the movie, and I think that's the the crux of a lot of these like um, TV to film adaptations is does it require you having that knowledge or the vibe? understand what it's about. I would say that actually you, you shouldn't. You should be able to just enjoy the movie for what it is. Um, but uh, anyway, Stephen, what did you make <laughs> of the film version of the, the show that you love? Well, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like the Simpsons movie, you know, and obviously the Simpsons is the thing that you would draw the closest comparison to with Bob's Burgers. It's obviously, it's about a family. It's about a working class family. Uh, in this case, uh, they run a burger stand and uh fairly run-down seaside town. Uh, they don't specify where it is, but 
I always thought it was kind of like a New Jersey-esque, like an Asbury Park, um, maybe not Atlantic City, but but one of those New Jersey shore kind of towns where there's a boardwalk and an amusement park. Yeah, Linda uh, has, a, has a real New Jersey accent, the, it, the, 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 mom, the mom, wife, the character. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's expressly stated, but I, I feel like uh, it is. And, and then there's kind of like, but then there's like the ritzy island where all the rich people live offshore, which is kind of like a Martha's Vineyard, which doesn't really enter it into it in in the movie but it is a, a constant thing in the, the show whenever they need to compare the belchers to the haves and the have-nots kind of episodes and those kinds of things i mean there's a certain class consciousness about the show that i really appreciate uh having said that like like the simpsons movie maybe half an hour is the best format for these characters uh it's uh it's they're so full-on and kind of in your face uh, that on a small screen for 30 minutes is perfect. It tells these great little story arcs uh, involving, you know, multiple characters and recurring characters that kind of liven things up. And to take that to feature length is tricky. Uh, And I don't know that they quite stick the landing because basically you get three episodes jammed into one. And I find that uh, that is a lot of Bob's Burgers. That's a lot of the Belchers to take uh, over the, you know, especially when you're in a theater and you don't have a break between ads or or what have you. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, all right, so my vibe, my connection, my feeling about the film was that, so to give you listeners who haven't seen it or don't know the show uh, a bit of uh, detail about the plot, uh, Bob, who is the patriarch, voiced by H. John Benjamin, he's I found him very gloomy. He is uh, he's the guy who cooks at the, um, uh, you know, in the diner. And his wife, Linda, she's uh, very optimistic and very forthright. And they've got three deeply messed up kids. There's teenage Tina, uh, voiced by Dan Mintz, who dreams of being uh, the girlfriend to an idiot boy in her class. There's slightly younger, slightly thicker Jean, played by Eugene uh, Meerman. And the youngest, Louise, uh, voiced by Kristen Schaal, who, of course, is an awesome uh, uh, comic and uh, and that character has genuine smarts and gumption, even though she won't stop wearing a hat with pink bunny ears, which she gets teased for. Uh, now the Belchers are behind on their loan payments to the bank. They have a week to raise the cash. When a sinkhole opens right in front of their business, they owe rent their kooky vaudevillian landlord, Calvin Fishoder. Uh, voiced by Kevin Klein, he's great, and he has a weird brother, Felix, uh, voiced by Zach Galifianakis, and a weird cousin, Grover, voiced by David Wayne. Now, um, you know, if the Belchers don't pay up to these various uh, lenders, uh, they're Bob is convinced they're going to end up living in a box in the street. And this financial issue, of course, ends up being a sort of a launch pad for a murder and a whodunit and a lot of weird characters behaving weirdly. And I just didn't find it very funny. I'll find it very bleak. Like, it was just very grim in a way that felt like there was uh, there was something anachronistic about it. Like, it came out of the 1930s or something, this Depression era. <laughs> it was written by Clifford Odets. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, you know, there's... Eugene O'Neill. <laughs> yeah, oh, all of that. Or maybe Edward Hopper, you know, <laughs> it, the, given it's an animated, uh, you know, image. Uh, I just felt like there's something about it that that I couldn't quite get on board with. And there's musical numbers, which I thought was awesome, but they don't really have a lot of enthusiasm. Everything seems kind of off. And then there's there's a scene in it, and I won't spoil what happens, but there's a scene in it where, where characters are buried, uh, <laughs> like are buried alive. 
and in a vehicle, and it is terrifying. Like, I just, I was like, who is this for? I, I couldn't, I could not get on board with this story. I really enjoyed the antagonists. I enjoyed the wealthy characters and their their goofiness. Um, you know, their personalized submarines and their, uh, their tree houses, you know, that kind of stuff. I almost wanted to spend more time with them, but uh, we don't. Well, I, I do like these characters, and I, I do like the kind of hard scrabble situations that they're in from week to week. Usually, you know, trying to keep the restaurant afloat and trying to keep, uh, you know, <laughs> Calvin Fishoder at uh, at arm's length. And Kevin Klein is terrific uh, voicing that uh, that character. They really let him go to town as the kind of the the pompous guy with the cape and the monocle, just kind of an exaggerated uh, landlord character who also happens to own the wharf where the amusement park is. Uh, so there's the tie in there. And, uh, you know, I, I like that whole uh, plot line involving him and then the, the murder mystery that we get involved with and so on. Um, but uh, I find the, like the kids, I, I really like the kids, but a little goes a long way, <laughs> especially with Gene invents this new instrument involving a napkin holder dispenser and a rubber band and a plastic spoon. And that kind of goes on a little too long uh, with with that idea. And of course, it all comes together at the big concert at the climax and so on. And uh, I, I, what what is endearing on the show sort of becomes mildly irritating. <laughs> and, and the musical numbers, uh, it, you mentioned those and, and Music is a part of the show as well, but it doesn't dominate the way it does in this movie. And I felt like the songs on the show are a lot better than the ones in the movie. Like the ones, I've got the soundtrack CD for the first few seasons. Uh, and those are really charming songs, especially when they're kind of, you know, loosely parodying a style or an artist or something like that, like boy bands or what have you. Um, the songs in this are kind of like Broadway show tunes and they're fairly relentless. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of dancing, which isn't necessarily the case on the TV show. Uh, and the dancing seems kind of like, well, they're animated. Like, who cares if they're dancing? <laughs> you know, with Linda just jutting up her knees and elbows and, and so on. And it just, it, it, that all felt a little forced to me, you know, like the way the music worked in the context of the story. Although I did like the whole sequence where they go down to Carney Town. And we meet all the yes. all the carnies where they all live in these trailers and and betting on on rubber ducks, betting on the rubber duck game and all yeah. this kind of stuff. You know, it's kind of a nightmare alley kind of vibe about it. And I like I like that part of it very much. But but again, it, you know, this is a movie that I pretty much liked in fits and starts more than as an overall experience. Uh, you know, it's maybe it'll work better on a small screen when you can hit pause every twenty two minutes or so. Uh, but uh, it yeah it did. Uh, like I say, I, I did enjoy it from uh, in bits and pieces, but but as a whole, I was just kind of glad when it ended. Yeah, I was really glad when it ended. So let's let's talk about a movie where I was really happy yes. to see all of it, and that's Fire Island, uh, directed by Andrew Ahn, written by Joel Kim Booster, who is uh, also an actor in the film. And I this is a gay rom com. It's loosely based, actually, not maybe not so loosely based on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Set on the legendary Fire Island, which is a queer village, I guess, uh, off uh, Long Island, New York. There are no cars. It's just like a group of homes. And, uh, you know, this is a really fun movie that, uh, as someone who... I really miss the regular romantic comedies that we used to get. Of course, many of them have been pretty bad in in the you know 21st century. But uh, but there have been a number of quality romantic comedies over the years, and uh, the, as a genre, it has diminished. It's kind of gone fallow. So it's great to see one that really works. Uh, and uh, 
Yeah, so this concerns a group of close friends who head to Fire Island for an annual summer getaway. Uh, Booster, it plays Noah, sort of the Elizabeth Bennet role, uh, and the lead in the ensemble. His central interest is his buddy, Howie, played by Bowen Yang in the Jane Bennett role, uh, making sure he has a good time and, well, gets laid. But Howie might need some extra help for this mission to succeed because he's a lot more anxious and sensitive than the rest of the crew, and maybe because he's less fit or less ripped than some of the other Bennett sisters, uh, you know, that that could give him a little bit of, uh, of insecurity. And and he he generally is is a little uncertain about what's going to happen on this this week away. Margaret Cho is in this as Erin. She's the movie's Mrs. Bennett, a friendly lady on the island who lets these these group of friends stay in her house. But this looks like it might be the last stand on Fire Island for this this group. But uh, Erin can't afford to live there anymore and is planning to sell the house. Um, you know, and something that Noah says in the voiceover, uh, to paraphrase it, these guys aren't really that poor. They're just never going to own their own house. So, uh, yeah. And so on the island, they meet a far wealthier group of visitors, including a young doctor, Charlie, played by James Scully. Uh, and uh, he's the sort of Charles Bingley stand-in. And his pal is the stuffy, judgmental lawyer, Will, who's uh, played by Conrad Arikamora, who is very much like Darcy. And also in the mix is a dubious Dex, played by Zane Phillips, and he is kind of like George Wickham, if any of those names are familiar from the original Jane Austen. And this is a really charming, light, and breezy comedy. It's not uh, without its uh, its actual issues. They do discuss uh, some political issues, which I really appreciated, but in a very soft touch. Um, issues of racism, of body consciousness, and how uh, sort of heteronormativity can sour one dreams of love, especially if you've watched a lot of those romantic comedies where, you know, <laughs> uh, regular white, um, you know, heteronormative people have romances, and you're just not in that uh, that group. So, yeah, I thought this was clever, it was funny, and I, I really enjoyed Fire Island. Yeah, I did too. Uh, and uh, I really felt for these characters, uh, for, for the issues they're undergoing as they're getting older. Uh, you know, they're, I mean, they're, you know, they're only on the brink of turning 30 or around that age. They're not, uh, you know, they're not necessarily middle-aged, but they're, you know, they're getting to the point where they have to start thinking seriously about what they're doing with their lives. And, uh, you know, whether or not this is like their last uh, sort of hedonistic blowout before you know, having to start adulting, as it were. And, uh, you know, I liked how the film approaches those issues. The, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, what it's like to, you know, live in a community where there's this kind of super hot body image that, that you're supposed to attain to and, and you don't uh, fit into that mold uh, and what that's like. I thought that was a, a great aspect of the film. And and I thought it did a really good job of balancing all the different characters' kind of struggles and uh, and issues. And, 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 and it was also very, very funny. I mean, very quippy. Uh, yeah, I, I read that uh, you know, some of the negative comments on the film are that the characters are a little too stereotypical or what have you. But but I, you know, there there is a certain thing about fitting into certain molds, and uh, the film addressed that, and I, I I didn't have an issue with that at all. No, and I think that there are certainly cliches, but the the film is smart enough to play a lot around with them. You know, some of those those things. Uh, I think it's it's self aware enough to to be yeah to be sharp about that. Um, I mean, I didn't feel like some of the sporting characters they barely manifest a personality. Uh, there's a heavy use of voiceover, a technique which I I don't know. I usually find more effective if is used sparingly, but I was willing to give uh, the film a lot of leeway just because I felt like it was it was uh, 
you know, in moving in new directions and because it made me laugh. And I, I thought the characters were really appealing. Um, the, a lot of the gags really work. Uh, I don't know whether it will satisfy the hardcore Jane Austenites uh, who are looking to see whether they, <laughs> they're, you know, the writing transfers to this scenario. Uh, but I think it's more or less besides the point. I, I was, it's been a while since I've, I've, read, um, you know, Pride and Prejudice or seen the film, uh, which I'm a little more familiar with. But, uh, but you know, I guess the, the, the basic blueprint is there. It just depends on how much you want to buy into that. Yeah, I, I didn't worry about the Jane Austen part at all. Obviously, they, they right off the bat, one of the characters is reading Jane Austen. So they, they kind of declare it early on in the film. But I, I didn't, you know, I, I haven't read Pride and Prejudice. I've only seen the movie version. But uh, it wasn't uh, not, uh, and that was you know years ago. So not being a- as present in mind uh, with that story didn't didn't uh, bother me at all in terms of watching this and enjoying it. All right. So today on Lens Me Your Ears, as we have been uh, talking about, this is our summer movies. Uh, episode, uh, maybe first of a, of a couple. We'll see. Um, and as we were coming to this subject and deciding what films to watch, we talked about doing an episode actually about movies set in and around swimming pools because so many of them, <laughs> we, and we still could. We still I, could, yeah. I mean, these those are a fascinating kind of subgenre of summer movies. They tend to be class conscious because a swimming pool is a symbol of, you know, upper middle class success. Uh, I mean, The Graduate has that amazing scene in the pool that's been you know, paid homage to again and again in feature films. Uh, we could watch a bigger splash and then the yes. original film it's based on Lapisine which I discovered this week is on Criterion oh, Channel. Oh, terrific. I want to see it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a new arrival on 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 the Criterion Channel. Is Alain Delon in that? Yep. Oh, that's that right. There. Yeah, yeah. That for sure. We could talk Fast Times Richmond High, we could talk Sexy Beast and Suspiria. Yes. The original Suspiria. So, there's a lot that we could get into and I am making I'm putting a little uh, flag into this uh, you know into this conversation that I think if we do another yeah. summer movies we should focus on the swimming pools. Did we talk we docked in the heights already cuz the pool Yes. The, yes. The, darn it, the pool scene in that is is so great. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the swimmer from 1968. This is not a film I had seen before. Stephen, you recommended it, and it is fascinating. You have it on DVD, thankfully, because uh, it's not one that's easily necessarily found, I don't think. But it's a fascinating film that before this week I hadn't even heard of. Um, It's based on a short story that ran in The New Yorker by John Cheever in 1964, and it's adapted by the husband and wife team of Eleanor and Frank Perry. Burt Lancaster plays Ned Merrill. He's fit tanned 40-something man in swim trunks. He basically, you know, wears the same thing through the whole movie. The opening credits feature owls and rabbits and deer running away from something, and that something is presumably Ned. Uh, It's an interesting way to start, suggesting a schism between Ned and nature. Um, And so is kind of his plan for for the story. Ned shows up unannounced at some friend's backyard in Connecticut. They haven't seen him in ages, But it sounds like they knew him back in the day when they were all younger and liked to party. Well, they still like to party, but he doesn't anymore. He's been separate from all of this for a while. They're they're all nursing hangovers, and he just seems healthy, and he's tanned, and he's fit. Uh, And uh, 
you know, they're thrilled to see him, though he seems like he's kind of in another plane, as if he went off and became a Buddhist or something. Now, Ned looks over the valley and realizes he knows people with pools all the way across the county to where he lives. So what he decides to do, he's going to go from one pool and one property to another, swim in them all, visiting the people along the way. He says it's like a river. He's going to swim home. And it's a weird idea, but it's also a weird movie. It's a fascinating one. It's very 60s in its sort of like soft focus, Vaseline on the lens kind of vibe. <laughs> but it's also a class drama. And I think it's like... A lot of woodwinds on the soundtrack. <laughs> yes, a lot of woodwinds. Um, and I think it's an examination. It's actually maybe a class critical you know, film. Like it, it did make me think about late 60s movies like that we've talked about uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and also Two for the Road um, in a weird way. It, it's and, – and, you know, it's a movie I was – anyway, I'll, I'll stop talking now. Stephen, <laughs> tell me what you've got – you clearly enjoy this film since you own a copy of it. What's uh, what's your take on The Swimmer? Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a great encapsulation of this uh, examination of the suburban malaise that had, you know, become a real prominent theme in literature around this time. You know, you look at – books of like of uh john updike or um philip roth or you know even something like breakfast of champions by by kurt vonnegut jr that looks at the kind of you know middle class uh businessman and uh you know trying to re-examine this uh life uh, of being kind of put in a box of you know having the house in the suburbs with the wife and the kids and and the model of the perfect family and everything that everything you're supposed to achieve that had been kind of put forth in popular media and so on and and basically just tears it all apart that that it suggests that it doesn't exist or that it's a, a, a you know a fairy tale or a fable which was what this film is and, and that and that you know we were presented with a guy who seems like the perfect example of of this life he apparently is a successful in business has a, a loving wife and and two uh two beautiful daughters and uh but of course as he goes from pool to pool more of his uh story emerges as we see the different reactions from people from from you know his his kid's former babysitter from an ex-lover from you know the the people that he does business with who who run this you know run a local store that he owes money to it just you know gradually we get a better picture of what's happening and it's Kind of implying that this there's a kind of a rot that's set in all across uh, the country, and it, you know it, it, it juggles these really big ideas with a fairly simple idea of just swimming from pool to pool to get home, and I, I just love how it handles it all. Yeah, it's funny, you know, and it's also about I couldn't help but notice that it's about Lancaster and his physique. I mean, he's yeah. not a young man when he made this movie. Yeah, 52. He's, yeah, and he, the camera just drapes on his skin, his shoulders. It's a little bit like Stallone and Schwarzenegger would be, you know, 15, 20 years later, but those guys were oiled up and shirtless when they're in their 20s and 30s. Lancaster is in his 50s. He spends the whole movie in swim trunks. He's got a great smile. He he's uh, you know, he's clearly in good shape and uh but the the camera just lingers on his physicality but as he goes along i mean it's a really great physical performance he you know he hurts his foot so he starts to limp and then he's just not quite as like uh his stature changes his physicality changes and uh and he just feels you know he he starts to understand that oh maybe not everything is as great as he thinks it is and and of course it's his relationship with these other characters we reveal that he's might maybe not this golden boy 
that uh, we might have thought right at the start. Um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it too. Uh, and it's it's a I mean I I always had a you know fairly solid respect for Lancaster for what he did with his career and all his his great roles. But I'm so impressed with this particular one because I think there's I think it shows a certain kind of creative. Um, uh, adventuresomeness, if that's uh, you know the right way to put it, he's just he's got a lot of courage here, and I really I really appreciated that. Yeah, and I understand at some point Frank Perry left the project, and Sidney Pollock kind of finished it off. There were some fights with the studio and between the director and the star, but it really does fit in with Frank Perry's films. If you get a chance to see them, sadly, he's probably best known for Mommy Dearest, the Joan Crawford oh. biopic uh, with Faye Dunaway. Uh, it's it's probably the film that most people would recognize, but he was really great at looking underneath the veneer of modern life, as it were, in in films like, uh, there's a great thriller called Man on a Swing. He did uh, his own version of the gunfight at the OK Corral called Doc with uh, Stacey Keach as Doc Holliday um, that uh, has only recently kind of resurfaced on uh, on Blu-ray, if you can track that down. And and, and he just has an, a, an interesting kind of poetic way of looking at things that uh, it's just seems like it's, you know, well, obviously it's from another century, but you know, you, you kind of wish uh, maybe some filmmakers could get back to this kind of storytelling. You know, there are a few out there who still do this kinds of thing, but yeah, you're right about the the idea based element of the story, and you know, it's it's it doesn't all work. I don't think there are some elements that uh, that feel creepy and weird. Oh and, yeah, the uh, whole sequence with the babysitter, yeah, gets a little icky. But you know, I think that's also lends itself to the idea that this guy has has uh, is not as squeaky clean as he might have seemed from the start, and it's about tearing down this sort of patriarchal image of this like successful man. Um, and you know, I just I also appreciated the sort of metaphor of the swimming pools, right? That like this the swimming pools have a symbolism that's uh, you know very clear. Uh, the first few that we see are pretty much empty. Or, or just like one or two people are in them. And then when we finally get to the public pool, it's completely full of people. Like there is no space at all. It's completely jammed. And, uh, you know, and, and he, has to, uh, he has to jump through all these hoops in order even to just get into it. Uh, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. Like there is a lot of stuff. This, this is a film that you could really talk about afterwards at length, which I guess is sort of what we're doing. Yeah, but. <laughs> well, the, the last pool is almost kind of terrifying. You know, it's so crowded. And I, I wonder if like Steven Spielberg borrowed from that when he was shooting Jaws when mm-hmm. he seemed all the people in the water at the beach. Yeah. I feel like this may have had some influence. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I think if we end up doing a, uh, a future episode on pools, uh, you know, we'll have to remind people to watch this because it's, uh, it's, it's very much worth seeing. Um, let's move on to another film now, and we're going to jump ahead a couple of uh, decades. Uh, it's A Life is Sweet, uh, written and directed by Mike Lee, uh, released in 1990. This is actually his fourth film. It follows Bleak Moments, which was his first in 1971. I didn't realize he got started so early. Uh, meantime in 83, High Hopes in 88. And uh, after this, he was off to the races with movies like Naked, Secrets and Lies, and Topsy Turvy, which are probably my three favorites of his. But uh, Life is Sweet is really worth seeing, too. It's a story of dreamers. Uh, set in a suburban house in London, a family of four. You've got the father, Andy, played by Jim Broadbent, the excellent Jim Broadbent, who is a variety of projects, never seems to finish anything. His <laughs> wife, Wendy, played by Alison Stedman, she's supportive and enthusiastic, um, but, you know, uh, she's got her own life as well, and they've got twin daughters, Natalie, played by Claire Skinner, and Nicola, played by Jane Horrocks, 
who I will always think of as Bubble from Absolutely (laughs) Fabulous, but she was also terrific in Little Voice, a film uh, that I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember how good she was in that. Um, Now, Nicola's clearly uh, struggling with self-image, possibly bulimia. She's shut in, completely obsessed with her weight and angry at everyone around her, while Natalie, she's a plumber, she's very laid back. Um, I couldn't help but think about how much Claire... uh, um, uh, Claire Skinner, who plays Natalie, uh, looked like Mo Berg from The Pursuit of Happiness back in the day. Um, <laughs> but uh, that whole late 80s glasses, and she's so white, she's practically transparent. Uh, so Andy, the, the father, buys a fast food caravan, more like a wretched old trailer, from his shifty buddy, Patsy, played by Stephen Rhea. And he hopes to start his own business this while family friend Aubrey, Timothy Spall, is starting up a French restaurant, The Regret Rien. Uh <laughs> So it is Lots of Edith Piaf references. Yes, there you go. So it's weird, actually, how many I'm just sort of piecing this together now. How many parallels there is with Bob's Burgers in this story? <laughs> you think about it for a second. There are a lot. Um, Grumpy kids. Yeah. Unfocused dad. Yes. Yes. Go get her mother. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. Weird hmm. friends. Yeah. It's all very strange. Um, Spall, I found way over the top here. He's very. He's just totally outrageous. Like wandered in from some pantomime show. His character is emotionally unstable. He's not very bright. His dress sense is clownish. But uh, if I guess he's probably the part of this I had the most trouble with, just believing him as a character, just because he was so... They all indulge him, his quirks, but I just was like, is, does this guy really exist? Maybe. I don't know. Um, and then we get a very young David Thewlis as Nicola's occasional lover, and uh, and that's... I really liked him, and their whole connection yes. is fascinating. She's got some really interesting kinks that we <laughs> learn about as we go through. Um I love the lightness of this film. It's, you know, it's partly because the core of the family, despite how much they constantly tease and razz each other, you get a sense of love and commitment to each other. Wendy is amazing. Her emotional intelligence is awesome. And they deal with a lot of hardship just by laughing, which is kind of delightful. Um, And I love the sisters. They're maybe my favorite characters. So different from each other, but still supportive of each other. Yeah, the scene where uh, Wendy um, confronts Nicola and, and, you know, tries to get under the her shell and find out what is wrong basically why she's so miserable and why she can't just you know accept the love that their family has for her and and you know get on with her life basically is is heartbreaking it's it's such a wonderful piece of acting uh in in the middle of this film and and uh i mean there's, there's great moments all throughout of course but uh but that that scene just stuck with me for so long after i'd seen the film and it just goes by so quickly. I, I just it felt like it ends, and you just you, you wanted to keep going. You want to know more about these people, and uh, and where their lives are headed, which is def- definitely the sign that they're doing something right in this film. Uh, I saw this when it came out initially, and I don't know that I watched it since. So that you know, this would be like first time seeing it in like thirty years or so uh, when it played at Wormwoods, and uh, you know I remember loving it then. Of course, couldn't wait to see more of what Mike Lee had to offer, and. Uh, you know, it's great to go back and and see how his style of working with his cast of kind of, like I said, there's a heavy improv element that goes into it before the cameras start rolling where they work out scenes and so on. Um, kind of Altman-esque, but maybe a little more focused than some of those some of those Altman films, but but with, uh, you know, with huge dividends in terms of character and, and how they relate to each other and so on. And, you know, the film really does have that lived in feel that uh, that a great Mike Lee film has that that you know, you, you don't doubt the authenticity for a second. Uh, Timothy Spall, I, I, 
I mean, it's a comedic character. He's he's meant to be eccentric. I think when they're going over the menu, I think maybe somebody, some flag should have gone up there. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you know liver in strawberry jam or whatever, or prawn in jam or whatever. You know, some of these dishes that he's coming up with, which they you know they actually created for the mm-hmm. film with a chef. Like you can make them. No one's going to eat them, but you can create these things. Uh, I, I feel like somebody would have said. Uh, nobody's going to eat that. Somebody would have raised a flag at some point, but but um, that's that might be my one sticking point. But then, of course, you, you wouldn't have that the joke of that menu, which is just so appalling. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I don't even think they get a customer anyway, so it's never really an issue. But but uh, apart from that, uh, I just think it's it's a treasure that holds up really well today. Yeah, it is a special film, and I, you're right. Mike Lee is someone who um, you know has has put out some really wonderful films, and I think. One of the the through line with a lot of his work, aside from his politics, I think, is is that his work with character actors, uh, the uh, realism, I guess, within the the um, the performances is just something special, uh, and that's what I got from Life Is Sweet, and that's what brought me in. I think I love the fact that that after the filming and the film was done, and David Thewlis. I don't know if he, maybe not complained, but made note of the fact that his character only has like a couple of scenes and that uh, I, I don't know how much was filmed or what was on the cutting room floor, but he kind of said to to Mike Lee, you know, I really wish my character had had more to do or had a more substantial part. So Mike Lee turns around and writes naked. Right. For David. <laughs> it's like, you, you want a part? Here's a part. And then yeah. just completely blows his career wide open in such a, a brilliant and disturbing disturbing way. way yeah that is a film that i own and yet on the criterion uh, edition and i have not had the courage to watch it for years it's intense uh and you know you want to talk about like movies set in other other seasons that would be a maybe a good fall or yeah. winter movie uh but this is you know this does qualify as a summer movie. I don't know if I said it specifically before because I was talking about one of the movies on our list that might not be a summer movie. I think that's Bob's Burgers just because it's so bleak to me anyway. <laughs> and I feel like summer movies tend to be lighter and, you know, and, and airier like the season itself. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears and the third and final installment of our look at a handful of summer movies. They're not really connected in any way, shape, or form. We just kind of came up with a list of, of films we wanted to see that had a summer theme or a setting or or what have you. So uh, these these last two films that we're going to look at, uh, 500 Days of Summer and uh, Adventureland, are, are, are tied together in that they're about young love and and they're fairly recent. Both came out in 2009. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you know, that's what kind of connects them. There, there's a similarity in theme and and uh, the kind of general age of their cast. But but apart from that, they're they're very different movies and and both highly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. 500 Days of Summer I had not seen since it was released, and uh, uh, it's on uh, Amazon, I guess now. Uh, I actually have it on my in my DVD library, so I pulled it out. Uh, directed by Mark Webb, it stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel. Now it says right off the top that this isn't a love story; it's a romance between two leads that doesn't work out. 
So the interest in the story is about why it doesn't work out. Now, Tom is played by uh, Gordon Levitt, is a 20-something dude who works at a greeting card company in Los Angeles. He'd really like to be an architect and designing buildings, but has settled into this life of disposable sort of sentiment. Uh, Truth of the matter is, he's a diehard romantic, and when Summer played by Deschanel, starts working in his office. He takes an instant liking to her. They bond over passion for the Smiths, uh, which I just don't understand, but that's me (laughs) because I'm not a fan. Um, She does well singing at an office karaoke party, which makes sense since uh, Deschanel has a great voice and is a musician on her own right. Um, And there's definitely chemistry between them. The problem is that Summer doesn't really believe in the sort of like romanticism that Tom does, and she just enjoys things on a day-to-day basis. So we have this central schism in their characters, and the story is definitely told out of sequence. We see the couple's relationship stall and reignite and stall again, depending on when it's, you know, when it's, when we're, what point in their relationship that we're in. And it's really well done. I thought... That in sometimes that sort of cleverness in its structure was in danger of outweighing the heart of the story. But there's a scene close to the end where Tom is waiting for a job interview and shot in the famed Bradbury building in Los Angeles. And I thought that scene did not work. Um, it's a groaner. Mm. But otherwise, actually watching this again, I was really impressed at its structure and its cleverness in its script. There's also Chloe Grace Moretz as Tom's little sister, who's maybe, you know, the wisest person in the film. And that's not something I generally like, the smart kid who knows everything better than the adults. Yeah, it's um, very sitcom Yeah. Um, but uh, watching it again, I also was reminded Joseph Gordon-Levitt at one time was, he was almost the lead in the Scott Pilgrim movie at this point in his career. He did not quite make that, but he made this. And um, I do like the sort of central core of the romance. I love the naive leading man pursuing a woman who he thinks is right for him, but philosophically she isn't. And she makes that very clear. Uh, they have a deep difference in their values. But I do know that it's this movie told from Tom's perspective. We do not get to know Summer as well. And she's, even though she's always up front in her intentions, she's missing a lot of depth in her character, which I think the movie suffers for because we just don't get to hear from her about a lot of her feelings. And, you know, since the movie came out, it's been criticized for its manic pixie dream girl trope. <laughs> which we only, because we only get to know Summer through Tom's eyes. And a lot of Tom's ideas and his friends are sexist, and there is no doubt about that. And Tom is even kind of a jerk sometimes. um, And I don't think the film tries to hide that. But I think the film does really well in making us fall in love with these characters, even if they don't quite work out between them. And I think they're gorgeous together. uh, And I think that that the, the film... I think the characters might be sexist, and I think it does take that male perspective, but the film knows this, and I think the film is clear about this. So anyway, I'm kind of on the fence about the criticisms about it. Stephen, what did you make of it? Well, I I find that Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a real hard road to hoe here, uh, because Tom, I think we're supposed to feel for him. I think we're supposed to like him, but, you know, he's also... You know, we know he's got a kind of a dark side and and, uh, can be his own worst enemy some of the time and can be... Uh, distinctly unlikable at times, and I think uh, I think he manages to pull all that off. That that uh, you know he's basically like seventy five percent likable, twenty five percent not likable, or what have you. There's a certain percentage there, and I, I feel like he does um, embody all of that, that. That there are moments where you know you're not supposed to be on his side, and even though he is kind of our main protagonist through all of this, that you know he is in the wrong, and he does react uh, rashly or wrongly, and and uh, you know, but still, you know, we're supposed to root for him 
uh, even you know, you know, or at least root for him to to get over his own mistakes and his own you know clown headedness, uh, which uh, happens more than once during the film. And I, I find that uh, his performance really does. Uh, get us over those uh, speed bumps which another actor might not have been able to do like if you, if you didn't if you didn't have some sort of uh, feeling for his character then the film would be a complete dud and, and uh-huh. he does juggle that there's, I love the scene uh, there's a great scene where he's walking through a park and it just turns into a musical number completely <laughs> out of the book complete with an animated bird flying around his head <laughs> it's and, the best use of hollowed oats in yes, cinema exactly. I would say it is an amazing scene it, yeah. it reminded me yeah. of like Xanadu which didn't work so <laughs> with, with <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff but for some reason uh, you know and, and, and maybe in another picture that would have just pulled us out of whatever was happening but the, the way it uh, it kind of jumps around and it plays around with the, the story arc and so on uh I find that uh, it prepares us for, you know, that anything can happen in the course of the film. And that's one of the nice uh, elements about it, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a lot here for people like us who love cinema. There is a I think the filmmakers are well, um, you know, educated in terms of their cinema background. It's it's in the choice of music when they're in a car listening to French music. They the characters imagine themselves in Swedish movies, which I really love those scenes. Um, There's that scene in Ikea that's totally charming. Um. You know, they sort of getting to know each other as they wander around Ikea. And then when he shows around Los Angeles, the architecture he loves. And when they're in the park screaming penis at the (laughs) top of their voices. Um, And there's a great scene where they go to a screening of The Graduate. Speaking of The Graduate again, uh, for the second time in this podcast. And it's established that they just don't see the world in such in the same way because she is devastated by the ambiguous ending of the film and he isn't he thinks oh well this is you know they're off to the, to their new their future together but i mean that's one of the great things about the graduate is that you kind of have to, you can read into what that ending means and uh, oh and then there's the scene where the split screen scene that contrasts tom's expectations with a party when he's yes, been invited to a party with what actually happens with what actually happens and where um where Summer is in her in the place in her life. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there that I think still works really well. And while I can still understand the arguments about the whole manic dream girl stuff, I still... The MPDG. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think there's... I think the film's still worth seeing. I don't think it's something that, uh, that uh, needs to, you know, be shunted aside in the trash bin of cinematic history. I think there's there's interesting stuff here. Well, I, I, Zoe Deschanel keeps the character very grounded. I, uh, you know, I found that uh, I didn't think Summer was flaky. I didn't think she was, you know, being unreasonable. Uh, you know, she, she lays down the ground rules pretty early on for what she expects out of a friendship or a relationship or or, or not wanting a relationship uh, early on in the film. And I, I, I feel that she's very true to herself. And, uh, I, you know, that balances out Tom's kind of rash, you know, obsessed guy character uh, to a certain degree that, you know, you're, I'm, I was definitely more on her side than his. And, and I wasn't heartbroken that they didn't, uh, you know, make it as a couple. And it, but that, you know, that scene from The Graduate kind of underlines that with the, the fact that uh, you always wonder what happens later. And I guess there was a book, actually, that, that continued that story. Oh, is there? Okay. The the author of the the novel The Graduate wrote a not terribly well received sequel, which I don't, I can't remember if that was turned into a film or not. I hope not. But yeah. uh, but but I, I find that uh, that Summer is I feel, I felt she was fairly believable and um, you know and uh, you know also with uh, some of her some negative traits, but but for the most part pretty grounded and clear eyed. Mm, yeah. So so let's move on to uh, Adventureland, also from two thousand and nine. This is a film. Uh, 
from written and directed by Greg Matola. I think I'm pronouncing his name yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. Um, now, I have, uh, I, I guess he got it, this film made due to the previous directorial success, uh, Superbad. But he didn't write Superbad. That was Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. Uh, the last film he wrote previous to Adventureland was something called The Day Trippers from the late 90s. If you haven't seen it, make a point of going and renting it. Uh, or um, it's on, I think, the Criterion channel. There's certainly a Criterion edition of the film. Um, and it's a comedy drama about a family that drives to New York for the day to find out if the daughter's husband is cheating on her. Daughter played by Hope Davis, husband by Stanley Tucci with Leah Schreiber and Parker Posey in other roles. That's a great movie, very much worth seeing. Now, Matola hasn't written anything since. He directed Paul, the sort of alien comedy movie, but apparently he's directing a reboot of Fletch. Yeah, I saw that with John with Hamm. With John Hamm, yeah, which I can't wait to see that. Uh, anyway, so Adventureland from 2009. It's another one of those sort of rose-colored glasses look back at a formative period, um, but this is a sweet, well-observed, fun movie. Jesse Eisenberg plays James, a guy who's just moving from that sort of insecure, self-conscious teenage phase into being a young man. He's starting to become more self-aware. He's still prone to making stupid mistakes and letting his hormones get the better of him. He lives in Pennsylvania with his parents. He's about to go off to Columbia, New York for university. This is his last summer at home, or so he hopes. His father is about to lose his job, so he needs... Uh, James needs to make some cash in order to afford to go to school, and so not qualified really for anything, gets a job at Adventureland, the local amusement park. Now, it does not look like any modern park. The filmmakers did a great job to find one that had that lost-in-time look about it. So though it's a movie about his dead-end summer job, his friends, some of whom work at the park too, and the girl he falls for. Now, this girl M is having an affair with an older guy who works at the park, which complicates matters, and... Um, yeah, and Kristen Stewart, she's she's great in it. She, of course, she's found international stardom since then, and she is an Oscar-nominated actor now. Uh, she is really great here. It's fun to go and watch a movie from her. I mean, she's had an incredible career going back to the panic room. Um, but, uh, yeah, she is she's solid here. She She's cool and attractive, but confused in her own way that makes sense to sort of you go along. Um, I really liked Adventureland for sort of the feel way it captured that it's set in the 80s. I don't know if I mentioned that. Yeah, 87. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, Which, of course, I was kind of that age around then, so I feel like that connection maybe. I love the – I didn't work in a dilapidated amusement park, but I did hang out in places like that, <laughs> wore some of those clothes, played the arcade games, and silently yearned for, you know – uh, girls in stonewashed jeans and pink and black tops and hair and scrunchies. That whole thing just seemed very familiar. Yeah, the uh, the film is based on Matola's own uh, youthful reminiscences, reminiscences of uh, working in an amusement park, uh, I guess in Long Island, not in uh, Pennsylvania. But they, of course, they were in Pennsylvania because that's where they found the park they could use uh, in the off season. Apparently, it was actually snowing when they were filming some scenes. Wow, no kidding. And uh, they had to kind of point the camera in such a way that you wouldn't know that it was snowing in the background. <laughs> um, I think during the party, there's a lengthy party scene. I think it was actually snowing when they were filming it. So that they had to really, you know, mask off windows and things so that uh, you couldn't tell it was actually early winter and not uh, not the summer. But, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff, uh, a lot of that uh, tourist trap, stuff kind of rings true for me in a way. When I was this age in 1987, summer of 87, I was um, working in a uh, in, at Citadel Hill here in Halifax as a 78th Highlander. Oh, so wow. Not an amusement park, but certainly uh, a tourist attraction of sort. I mean, it's, you know, the historic site, but uh, certainly swamped by busloads of tourists from 
Kansas, you know, asking you dumb questions about the, the fortress and, and I'm dressed up in a kilt and a, you know, Victorian soldier's uniform <laughs> answering these questions. So, you know, it's, it's not that far from that to uh, dealing with uh, Pennsylvania rubes uh, running these uh, fixed uh, gambling <laughs> games or these, these games of chance and skill on the boardwalk of the of Adventureland. It, I felt a very similar kind of thing there. So, uh, you know, but instead of threatening my life uh, for rigging a game, it was like, how much does the fort weigh? <laughs> and, you know, and then a friend of mine goes, well, wet or dry. Uh, which wow. is one of the best answers ever. <laughs> So so yeah so so the, the setting of this all feels really true that the the soundtrack I mean it's all the music I listen to uh doing a show here at CKDU where we're sitting right now uh and playing a lot of Husker Du and replacements and Velvet Underground so uh, all that stuff uh, really uh rang a bunch of bells for me well that's awesome and and uh yeah I, the performances are really sharp uh I would say maybe there are moments for maybe a more depth that could have been brought into it uh, in the central love story, love triangle. But the mood of the piece is so warm and friendly, I can't fault it for staying breezy. And, you know, I, I, do, uh, I do appreciate that from these kinds of stories. You know, one of, the, one of the movies we considered watching was The Way, Way Back, which is a little more recent, but has the same kind of like, uh, you know, fairground attraction in the summer kind of vibe to it. Um, that's one I would recommend to people as well if they well, haven't seen it. I can go it. on our pool list because it's set in a water park. So. There you go. <laughs> Um, you know, so there are more, there's more to be discussed in this genre. And, uh, but I'm really glad to have seen Adventureland again. And, uh, yeah, I mean, since then, I remember at the time thinking to myself, eh, this Kristen Stewart, I'm not sure, you know, the whole Twilight thing. I just wasn't sold on her. And now I'm completely like into her. I will see anything she's in because she's making so many interesting choices with her career. Uh, so, you know, having worked most recently with David Cronenberg and in that amazing movie. So, yeah, that's, it's great to see where she is she's come from and and she's always had the talent so it's it's awesome to see that well that's it for this week's lens me your ears a look at some summer films hopefully you found some things to watch maybe during a summer rainstorm to be reminded of the nicer weather we could be having uh, amongst these films and uh hope you uh, find some new treasures to watch uh from uh, what we discussed on this show. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm Karsten Knox, and my Twitter handle is named after my film blog, Flaw in the Iris. And of course, we have a Lens Mirrors Facebook page and a Lens Mirrors Twitter account if you ever want to look for updates or follow us or ask a question or what have you. And uh, as, uh, as we do every week, we want to offer our thanks to the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who put the finishing production touches on the show. And of course, CKDU FM 88.1, who airs every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. and allows the use of the studios to record this uh, fabulous show. Hope you have a great summer and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 